0: This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence.
1: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor.
0: And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor.
1: This week, what's the mood like in Boris's Bunker?
0: Plus, have we forgotten how to take a joke?
1: And finally, has Covid permanently changed how people take communion? First up, For this week's cover story, James Forsyth writes about the defensive bunker mentality inside number 10. And he looks at the PM's strategy of keeping MPs sweet in order to hold back a no-confidence vote. James joins us now along with The Spectator's editor, Fraser Nelson. James, in your cover piece this week, you look at the prime minister's defensive strategy. How does it compare to his previous style of leadership?
2: Previously, Boris Johnson kind of worked outside in. He used to use his popularity in the country to put pressure on MPs. You know, I mean, Tory MPs picked him to be leader because they saw him as an election winner, because they saw him as his popularity out in the country. What we are seeing now is one of the principal aims of Boris Johnson's government now is to placate his own MPs, to prevent more letters going in and a vote of no confidence in, in him. And I think it's very telling that in this week's mini reshuffle, you know, the people who've been moved in, at the cabinet level are those people who who deal with parliamentarians. So it's the chief whip, it's the leader of the House of Commons. This isn't about, you know, better delivery of, of policy or public service reform or the like. It is about making MPs happier. And if you look at how every decision in government is now being seen through the lens of, you know, what will Tory MPs make of this? And he is not, this is very different from the beginning of his Premiership when he basically had this 80 seat majority and there was such faith in his political judgment among Tory MPs that they went along with him even when they disagreed with him. Fraser, the last few
0: days, as, as James said, there's, there's been a few changes. The mini reshuffle has been mentioned and also the large turnover of staff in Number 10. And you wrote a blog for The Spectator website last week about what a big loss Munira Mirza's departure was for the Prime
3: Minister. Are you reassured at all by his new appointment? Only slightly. I mean, Steve Barkley is a very competent person, but this whole um, reshuffle is noticeable by the lack of new blood. R- basically, Boris Johnson is recycling his existing cadre of people. He's taking one of his ministers, making him chief of staff. He's taking his old spin doctor, to Harry, making him his current spin doctor. He is getting hunkered down. And I think the, the cover of this week's issue, showing Boris and Kerry in the bunker, very much sums up what is happening here right now. This is now a government focused on backbench MPs, focused on keeping them happy. It's on a official motto is that survival is victory that's the way Boris Johnson sees it right now. We don't really see a government thinking imaginative thoughts about how to reform the health service, about how to repair the damage of the pandemic. This is a government fixated with one thing only, and that's survival. Uh, I'm optically buoyed to see that. It's, uh, this brings back to me the biggest single question under Boris Johnson's premiership. Does he have a follow-up act? After having got Brexit done, after having got us through the pandemic, is there anything else he's got to offer? The person most likely to come up with those ideas was Munira Mercer. Now that she's gone and nobody really there to replace her, I do wonder if anything is left of what we used to call the Boris Johnson agenda.
1: James, in your piece this week, you seem to make the point that the next big test for Boris Johnson are the May elections. Do you think the Tories are convinced he'll make it that far? And, and do they even really want him to make it that far, given his low popularity ratings?
2: So I think last week it, it felt like the letter writers had some momentum, you know, there, there, was, there seemed to be a kind of new public letter, you know, pretty much every day. That, that has slowed down this week. I think most Tory MPs, MPs will always choose to wait if they can. And I think at the moment the view is, wait to see how this new operation number 10 goes, wait to see what the police investigation concludes, wait to see what the Sue Gray report says, and kind of wait to see in the may elections you know how much do uh, what do voters make of this how much are they going to punish the tory party for what happened now obviously there is a split those people who've got councillors up for election in may tend to to incline to your logic lara which is look at the polls it's clear that the public take a very dim view of this why would you want to risk losing councillors why not act before but I think most Tory MPs are, have gone back to a kind of wait-and-see mode, and obviously that can change, and this story does kind of twist and turn. But I think at the moment, the kind of consensus view is wait and see how the grey report and the May elections go.
0: Fraser, the point you made about what, what it is Boris now has to offer reminds me of, in, in her political column this week, Katie Balls writes about the warring groups, the factions within the Tory party and the problem Johnson has that if he offers a, a, a crowd-pleasing policy to one group, for example the Red Wall MPs, it actually turns off quite a, a lot of members of another group, in this case the One Nation Tories. What do you think Johnson could offer that could actually unite different factions of the Tory party or is that just an extremely difficult situation?
3: Well, it's difficult, but I imagine there's nothing really he would not offer. I mean, one of the most striking things, as James Marks in his cover piece, is that he's abandoned his own obesity strategy. It wasn't so long ago that Boris Johnson, he came out of hospital and said, look, I've learnt don't be a fatty in your 50s. It's now time to ban promotions for junk food. That was a very controversial and deeply personal idea, which he's now junked. So a lot of this will be dumping ideas his MPs don't like. He's not going to dump HS2. So much money has been spent on that now that it probably doesn't make sense to to row back on it. But I imagine what we'll get, for example, uh, we heard him saying he's going to abolish COVID restrictions a month early. Now he'll have done that to please the um, the Tory backbenchers who are very keen to move on to a, a post-COVID environment. And I think what he'll try to do is just to keep giving them all little little sweeties, little baubles to keep everybody relatively happy. But as Katie points out in her excellent political column, the one group he hasn't really given much to is the Tory One Nation group. You might call them the Tory left. This is a group under Damien Green, Theresa May's former lieutenant, and there's about 40 of them they can get up to 90 at their meetings. And there hasn't been much for them, really. One of the other things that Boris Johnson said in the the House of Commons was that he was willing to trigger Article 16 and get rid of Northern Ireland Protocol. That would mean scrapping the Brexit deal with the EU. Now, there are many Brexiteers in this party, Steve Baker, etc., who love the sound of that. But this is abhorrent to the One Nation group. And if he were to do anything like that, they would probably trigger a leadership election, whether or not they had a chance of, of getting the 180 votes they needed to depose him. So I think right now he's in the relatively easy stage of finding out what various groups want and giving it to them. Sooner or later, he's going to be at the stage where assuaging the Tory right is going to really annoy the Tory left, and he's going to have to choose.
1: James, your your piece obviously focuses on focuses on rather this bunker mentality, and, and it's a state of mind which is often accompanied by paranoia. Do you think Boris is quite paranoid right now about anyone coming after his job?
2: I, I wouldn't go that far. I think he has always had kind of strong survival instincts, to to, to put it like that. But I think, as Fraser said, one of the problems he has is, you know, if your strategy is to placate your MPs, they don't all want the same thing. If every Tory MP wanted the same thing, it would be very easy. So take a look at this argument about the, the Vagrancy Act, for example. This is what makes kind of rough sleeping a criminal offence. It allows you to move people on. There are a group of Tory MPs who would like that to go. They think it's outdated. They think that you know, it kind of criminalises homelessness and isn't a good idea. On the other hand, there are lots of Tory MPs who have just woken up to this issue, who worry that if you get rid of this, you lose the ability to to move people on who are sleeping on your in a shop doorway or something. And that, you know, Britain could end up with a kind of San Francisco style homelessness problem. And so I, I think this is what's difficult, is you're trying to please MPs, but they don't all want the same things. And I think there's also this, this challenge, as, as Fraser said, that at the moment Boris Johnson is, you know, he is, I think in some ways he is thinking about the no-confidence ballot itself. They're you know, basically saying, if I don't lose the right, I will win that. So you see this with lots of new PPSs from, for him. He's now got four prime ministers, normally have two, all drawn from that kind of Brexit wing of the party. And someone on my, on my way here just stopped me and said to me, you know, look, the Tory party is like a catamaran. It needs both hulls to function effectively, and that Boris Johnson is trying to kind of sail the, this catamaran with only one functioning, relying on one hull alone. And I think that is a danger for him, that in trying to shore up his support on the right, he causes other splits within the party. And finally, Fraser, on
0: The Spectator's Coffee House Shots podcast last week, you said that the Johnson government is beginning to feel terminal. Is that still your diagnosis?
3: I'm afraid so, yes. I mean, it's not impossible that he escapes this. He's escaped um, tougher scrapes in the past. But when you see somebody playing such a defensive game, It's true in sport, it's true in politics. You can absolutely tell when somebody has pretty much given up winning and is just simply trying to reduce the losses. And that's what it looks like so far. I mean, you could have something coming out of the blue and saving him. There could be, you know, some fantastic, I don't know, say say Britain splits the atom of nuclear fission, for example, and all of a sudden we get cheap energy coming out of nowhere. I mean, it's difficult to imagine what sort of thing could go badly right for, for Boris Johnson. But I really can't see it right now. I mean, if you take Kate Andrews scoop in this week's magazine. She reveals how the NHS waiting list is going to go from six million up to nine million. That's even with the extra cash. These are disastrous figures. There's absolutely no way the Tories can go back to the, the public at the next election and say, look, we've charged all the extra tax. But you know what? The NHS isn't actually that much better. The waiting lists are something like four times higher than they were for most of the last decade. It's very, very difficult to see how Boris Johnson can really furnish his party with a message which they think is going to win the next general election. So right now, if I had to bet, I would say it's more likely he's not here by the Tory conference next October. But I would caveat that by saying that Boris Johnson specialises in defying political gravity.
0: Thank you, Fraser. And thank you, James. Next up, Jimmy Carr has caused an online outcry after an off-colour joke from his new show, His Dark Material, was clipped and posted without context on social media. Ministers such as Nadine Doris and Sajid Javid have now criticised a comedian for telling a joke. In The Spectator this week, both in print and online, two of our writers have come to Carr's defence. The Spectator's associate editor, Douglas Murray, joins us now, along with Sam Holmes, who is The Spectator's podcast producer by day and a stand-up comedian by night. Douglas, in your column this week, you come to the defense of Jimmy Carr uh, and his edgy Holocaust joke. Is this a matter of principle in your eyes?
4: Well, well, free speech is a matter of principle, which includes the freedom to say things that people find very offensive. And uh, obviously a lot of people find Jimmy Carr's uh, joke uh, that's been going around very offensive. I'm not a fan of Jimmy Carr myself. I don't offer any defense of him Uh, But I defend the principle that people have the right uh, to make jokes that are edgy. And we, as members of the public, uh, have the right to turn off or turn on. Uh, But what we've seen in this case is a very typical thing in our era, which is the the desire to seek out that which will offend you. That's quite different from actually just taking natural offence at something.
1: Sam, you've written for the Spectators website that you were in fact in the live audience when Jimmy Carr was testing out these jokes. And before the internet blew up over the Holocaust joke, what was the reception like from the live audience when you were watching?
5: Well, I went to see a Jimmy Carr work-in-progress show at the Soho Theatre. And unlike Douglas, I'm a big Jimmy Carr fan. I think I have been ever since he did his first ever show, Distraction, on Channel 4 way back when. So I was very excited to go and see this preview. And the Soho Theatre is a very right-on, very politically correct venue. And I was surrounded by big Jimmy Carr fans like myself and also the London elite wanting to see what Jimmy was going to do. But we all got the context of the mm. show and there were jokes about incredibly sensitive, incredibly taboo subjects. But Jimmy Carr is a good comedian and he knows how to structure a show mm. and also to give what you know what we call a trigger warning to his audience that this, this is what they've bought in for. And again, you've, if you buy a ticket to a Jimmy Carr show, especially a work in progress where he might be trying some stuff he realises might be too far. Mm. You've, you've bought into that. And there was no one tuttering at the urinals afterwards. I didn't see anyone angrily tweeting because we got the show in context rather than what turned out to be just the what is the crescendo of that hour in a 10-second TikTok, which, of course, is taking a joke completely out of context, which will feel very different than a full live show, Douglas. There's a part of your column where
0: you you talk about how disturbing it is. I suppose that politicians are lining up to to cast judgment upon uh, Jimmy Carr. Do you worry about a world where big tech, perhaps, or, or maybe even Nadine Doris, uh, are the gatekeepers to what is and isn't a joke?
4: Yes, of course, and we all should be. What's just been described is is what's often dis- um, called context collapse. And it's something that particularly happens in the modern era, particularly with uh, modern technology, where an out-group hears an in-group discussion and expresses horror at it. Uh, this it, it very, very common. It, it frequently happens in the release of, for instance, text messages, uh, WhatsApp exchanges. It happens with comedy shows. It happens with literature. It happens with all sorts of things. Context collapse is one of the big problems of the age, where everybody in on the sometimes literally joke is suddenly exposed to a wide audience that just simply doesn't understand what's just been laid out by Sam as the kind of context that it might arrive in. and it, it is a big problem. Now, of course, politicians and others are very keen to do what social media users do and leap on these things, uh, partly because it's much easier than doing an ordinary day's work. Uh, it's it's much easier, I'm very sorry to say, for a government minister like Nadine Doris Sajid Javid, joined in once again this week. I don't know why he's He's so particularly uh, keen to join these sorts of things. But both Nadine Dorries and Sajid Javid intervene in the Jimmy Carr issue. Uh, As I say in the piece, I mean, this is a pattern. Mon politicians, I think, should not get into these games. The uh, worst example, of course, the most egregious example, was a totally unremarkable, unknown-about SNP councillor who called not only for the prosecution under hate speech laws, of Jimmy Carr, but also of the audience uh, for daring to laugh. Of course, uh, this is a typically ridiculous demonstration by a typically ridiculous snp -er of the fact they don't understand the laws of the land or the the principles of free speech. But it is very worrying, yes, because as I say in my piece, it is very easy uh, to call for the hanging of the court jester. It's much easier than actually doing work or governing the land.
1: Sam, when you're not producing The Spectator podcast, you also work as a stand-up comedian. How do you find this environment to work in? Do you find that you're sort of having to rein yourself in? Do you worry about jokes being taken out of context, or is that not such a big concern?
5: I think, again, the job of a comedian is to make the audience in front of them laugh, especially if you want to get booked again. So on Friday night, Hmm. I'll be doing a 6.30 show at Angel Comedy, for people who've just left work, probably might be with work friends as well, and there is a different set of jokes that I will tell that audience to what I'll be doing at 11 p.m., which is Roast Battle, which is a show designed to be the most harsh, cruel show that you possibly can do, with two comedians just bringing up the worst subjects. Oh, your dad's dead, that's hilarious. You look like this celebrity, and that is meant to be the harsh show, and so therefore your job as a comedian is to adjust that based on the audience, to make them laugh. And sometimes if you're really lucky, you can make them think and you can make them change their mind about something. And the the thing is, Jimmy Carr will not tell some of those jokes that he did on his live show on His Dark Material on 8 Out of 10 Cats Does Countdown because they're different audiences and people are tuning in for different kinds of comedy.
0: And do you ever feel, Sam, that there's a
5: time when you've taken a joke too far and that you 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 regret a particular joke? There's never been a time where I've regretted a particular joke. There's certainly been times I've taken jokes too far, but that's how you make them better. You have to cross the line in an exactly. environment which has been, again, trigger-worn to going, by the way, I might cross the line in this show. That's why I'm, hit. I'm at a new act, new material night. I'm at a work-in-progress show, and then I will take this concept, and I think, oh, they're not laughing anymore, or I'm not getting the laugh that I want. Sometimes you can tell a joke which can be perceived as hateful towards a particular group, even though that's not what you've meant it. And if you can feel the audience laughing with sort of revulsion for that group, you think, oh, that's not the laugh I want. I still know the point I'm trying to make. I'm going to retool this and get it so I can get the response and the laugh and make the point I'm trying to make. But you have to make mistakes in order to get to those things. Otherwise, it's just gonna be incredibly safe, incredibly dull comedy for the next 20 years.
4: Yeah, can I just add to that, that's absolutely right. And there's, there's one other thing, which is, of course, this is just a manifestation of a much wider misunderstanding in our society at the moment, or confusion in our society about the nature of speech. Our society seems to be eliding speech and violence, for instance. We had it this week. Prime Minister makes a stupid reference a week earlier, Prime Minister's questions to something his opposite number didn't do. And uh, one person mentioned it on the street, and suddenly uh, all about politics is about did the Prime Minister cause the mob by his words? The answer is no. No, he didn't. Words are different from action. There can be a very, very liminal and very important point where they meet. But the line that that is at in any civilised society has to be incredibly carefully uh, nuanced. It has to be very carefully nuanced where the line is, where, for instance, somebody is standing outside somebody's house, uh, riling up a mob and saying, going to attack that house. That That has to be made very clear that it is different from people making jokes people making legitimate comments and much more. And our society has just become incapable of noticing this difference. It's all about speech is violence and uh, excusing, frankly, violence when it does happen as a result.
1: We're all talking about Jimmy Carr here, obviously. Do you think there's an aspect of this where it might have been good for his profile or has sort of raised his profile somehow? Sam?
5: I think Jimmy Carr knew how serious, how, how that joke could be taken. And he jokes in the special, here comes the career ender. And he says, I'm going to get cancelled mm. in the next 10 years. And here we, here we go, I'm going to go down swinging. And that might be the case that Jimmy Carr has seen the way our sensitivities are increasing and goes, maybe there's not room for me anymore. I've either got to adapt or die. And he's willing to go down in a blaze of glory in a Viking funeral. I think that Jimmy Carr has made a lot of terrible jokes in terms of upsetting people throughout his career. And he's always bounced back from He's even bounced back from stealing from the Queen and the taxpayer. But I think that there is a chance that either he's going to have to do a a slight Frankie Boyle and do only incredibly harsh jokes about the people that society says it's okay to do harsh jokes about, or he'll keep being himself. And there is a chance that the mainstream audiences will not want to watch that anymore.
0: Thank you, Douglas and Sam. And finally,
5: during the COVID pandemic,
0: churches had to rethink the way they gave communion to their congregations. But will we ever go back to the old normal? Max Maxtone Graham mourns the loss of the tradition of the communal cup in this week's magazine. She joins us now, along with Reverend Dr. Andrew Atherstone, a tutor in church history at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, who has written a study entitled drink this all of you individual cups at holy communion ascender you write in this week's magazine about how much you're longing to have wine at communion again could you summarize for our listeners what the rules have been in the church of england regarding communion during the course of the pandemic and and what the current guidance Allowed.
6: Yes, in, in March twenty twenty all administration of the Talis was suspended and, and, and during that first lockdown. And I think it, then it came back in December, but it had to be done in a very strict way. I think you weren't allowed to drink from the common carpet, it had to be just a blue gloved a blue gloved person administering a, a wafer. But now recently we are allowed. We are allowed to have wine again. It has been the guidelines are that you can we're grown up enough to make our own decisions about this. But I found that churches are being very very cautious probably only because they're trying to think of others and be very very careful not to spread germs and all that but I feel the time has come back has come to go back to the lovely old normal it's so easy to let these things slip all too easily you just find did we ever drink out of a common cup how extraordinary was that did we ever you know do do anything so dangerous Or, or, or shake hands during the sign of the peace again we have to do that awful little sort of coy little nod and smile now instead. I think it's very easy to just forget about these lovely things that used to be part of our lives and just make life duller and more lonely without it.
1: Andrew, in, in her piece, Ascender says that she feels short-changed when she takes communion of one kind and that she believes the common cup is essential. Would you agree with that point?
7: I, I certainly think a lot of people across the country are feeling shortchanged. We've had almost two years now of either just bread or perhaps dipping bread in the wine, um, having had lifetimes of drinking. As as the piece says, you know, J- Jesus in the New Testament says, drink, drink the wine at Holy Communion. Uh, it's an eating and drinking experience. And so lots of people are mourning that lack. And we need to find good, practical, safe ways to reintroduce drinking as quickly as possible.
0: So on that point, Andrew, you support a system to give individual cups for drinking Communion as opposed to the, the, the common cup. Is that a method that's been tried and tested elsewhere in, in other churches, perhaps? In
7: many uh, Church of England parishes up and down the country, actually, over the last few months, what we're finding is a mixed provision. So I'm a great fan of the common cup. I'd love to see the common cup back as, as quickly as possible. The problem is that ask your average parishioner and they're very, very hesitant even when the common cup is offered. Just this idea of sharing a cup with someone again, it's going to take a a big psychological hurdle to return to those days. So what we're saying is in the meantime, until everyone has built up their confidence to return to the common cup, let's return to drinking straight away, but drink from small cups. So it's not one or the other, uh, but hopefully both together.
1: Asanda, how how would you feel about the use of individual shot glasses as an alternative to the common cup.
6: Well, I, I do feel that once if, once you introduce them, that you would never go back to the common cup again. That had that horrible feeling that would stay forever because it is officially more hygienic. I think that the people I've the clergy i talked to are against it feel very strongly that something, even though you, Church of England people might not believe in in transubstantiation, that something very special happens to that wine once it's once it's been been blessed, and that. in 150 shot glasses, you're bound to have little dregs that get thrown away and that that is theologically wrong. Hence if that's with the common cup, the, the priest himself him drinks the last dregs, but mix it with a bottle of water to really drink the last dreg and then wipes it very, very clean. And that's what I think the theological worry about that is. Also, I don't like this idea of trade coming round to the pew and you all pass, pass it round. It's more, it just doesn't have that real communal feeling that the common cup does.
0: Are there other solutions uh, perhaps that you find preferable to individual uh, cups? I mean, such as, uh, Angie mentioned intinction earlier, dipping, I suppose, is what we might, might call it. I mean, d- does that. Keep enough of the communal element for you. That kind of a solution.
6: Well, I think I suppose it is better than nothing. But I do think that we, we've really got to just to snap out of this. Really, we're going into restaurants now, <laughs> and we're hugging our relatives, and we're just. The moment you do it once, you realise, come on, we can do this. I think there's far too much hesitancy and, and nervousness. It's an, as said, we've become an, a, a nation of fear. It's time to snap out of it. Yes, in, in, I did, did write in the piece that that people are using pipettes, believe it or not, to go up to the common cup and put a little pipette or calpol-style syringe into the common cup and suck a bit up to put into their mouths. And that also seems just slightly mad.
1: Andrew, do you think it is an inherently unhygienic way of taking communion? There is there's a point in the Ascender's piece where she mentions the fact that germs actually don't really stay on metal for very long. Do you think it, I mean, are there kind of, do we just need to kind of get a bit of a grip here? Maybe
7: We do. And there are contrasting uh, medical uh, papers which have been produced on the question. Again, the problem is the, the psychology of the average church on a Sunday morning. So to try and give them a chemistry lesson before receiving communion and having to say it's safe, we've done the test, it's metal, it's 18% alcohol, all of these sorts of things. It, 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 there's still the, the, the concern factor. And so Holy Communion should be something that is accessible to all and all are invited and feel comfortable receiving and if we've built in a system where people are coming up and yet still sort of terrified about sharing a cup which a hundred previous lips have passed before it reaches to their own, then then we need to change the system. Find a way of including everyone. And I think the individual cup is a is the most inclusive solution.
0: I mean, I I only wish there were as many as a hundred lips in in the church like <laughs> I go to to be able to take take communion. The are you saying then, Andrew, That that really uh, offering churchgoers a choice is 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 a viable solution. I mean, Isendra in her piece ends on this idea. I suppose for churches that have the the space, she mentions St Mary's Bourne Street in London. Talk, there's talk about offering a choice between those who want to go to high altar where they can get the wafer, and then if they want to go onto the the altar of the Seven Sorrows, they can kneel and receive wine from the the chalice. So, do do you think? perhaps introducing a a choice element like that could be the the best way forward?
7: That's uh, variety and choice is good. And I, I like that method. I like that offer. I think my concern, again, is that many parishioners will feel excluded from that, that although the Common Cup is being offered to them, if they have been isolating for the last 18 months, if they are immunocompromised, for example, you're basically saying to them it's bread only, for, for years potentially to come until those health concerns are allayed. And I don't think we should be saying to people that it's the common cup, just be brave and drink. Uh, it, it needs to be a much more winsome welcome than that. And I'd, I'd love to suggest that individual cups are not only thoroughly Anglican, but can be done in a thoroughly traditional way. Back in the 17th century, we read in the prayer book that wine was often consecrated in a flagon. And lots of traditional Anglican parishes have a flagon at the back of their safe, probably. They've not used for 200 years. Bring that out, fill it up with wine, uh, have that for the communion prayer, and then, and then pour out the wine into cups. So you still get the symbolism of unity. You still get the, the strong Anglican historical connotations to the, the practice. Uh, we shouldn't think of bad practices we've seen uh, around the country as reason that good practice can't happen.
1: And in your in your piece, you chat to Abraham Overwood, the director at Grace Church Supplies in Hull. What what did he tell you about communion wine?
6: Yes, he well he does tell me these indi- sales of indi- individual glasses are, are going up, as well as sales of, of non-alcoholic wine, which I was a bit shocked about because I I really do feel feel it ought to be alcoholic. But but that that's part of the, the rule I thought. But yes, he, yes, this is definitely going up. Although he does say that it's it's less prevalent in in, in the Church of England, which does officially not condone it and I do wonder how many in the pre-pandemic days I suppose how many people have died because (laughs) because they caught flu in those olden days from drinking from the common cup how many people caught a cold I mean I suppose we did go to we did take the common cup if we had a bit of a cold in the olden days you know what no one blinked blinked an eyelid about that we have all become very wussy and yeah.
0: Ascender, you you mentioned earlier other practices of of church going such as the peace Uh, you can't shake hands with other members of the congregation are there other elements to church going that you think the pandemic has taken away from us that you, you, you really want to see back?
6: Well, I mean, the, the, that definitely, the fact that chairs are put too far apart, so every man is an island, which is exactly what John Dunn said we shouldn't be. And and the, the, the lovely collection plate going round, that was rather well, like, you plonked your pound coin in there, two pound coins, five pound note, and that seems to have stopped because I don't know why something ha- passing from hand to hand seems to have been abolished. You're meant to tap your card at the end if you pass. It. But it, you know, all these little things just take away from take away from what church service used to be. Just be careful not to let it slip. Andrew, would you agree with that?
7: I think we're in very changed times. So 2019 is not going to come again. And the future post-Covid will be a changed world and a changed church. Hopefully many of those old traditions will return soon, but they will return in a refined form. And there's going to have to be some adaptation. There's going to be some flexibility. To meet the needs and to meet the concerns of congregation members. We want as many people as possible to be returning to the Church of England in, in, in great numbers. And therefore the the welcome needs to be wide uh, and we need to remove any barriers, any health concerns, allay them as quickly as possible.
1: Sandra and Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, why not subscribe to The Spectator to read everything we've discussed? If you subscribe today, you'll also get a £20 Amazon gift voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. I'm Laura Prendergast.
0: And I'm William Moore. And do join us again next week.